Children's Church at this time are dismissed. Well, good morning. My name's Tom Leary. I'm privileged to serve as one of the elders here at Parkway. Um, I want to remind you again about the financial seminar on Friday night and Saturday morning. Give Dan Overby some rest. Um, <laughs> um, it's, it's going to be good. Jimmy Geiskopf and Pete Gaudet are extremely gifted men in the area of finances. They've got a lot to share, and you will benefit. You will walk out with something you didn't have before. So I would highly recommend you sign up on the way out the door with uh, Chris Forsythe back there. Um, let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that we can gather as your people, that we get to gather as your people to lift up the name of Jesus. You are Jesus, our Savior King. We're grateful for your faithfulness. We're grateful for your blessing. We're grateful for grace, your gospel, and salvation. Keep us mindful of that, Lord, as we work through this passage of Scripture this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about giving. Don't sweat it. It's going to be okay. Um, never before have I been part of a church where the people have said, we not only want to know about the church's finances, we want to know from the pulpit what the Bible says about our own finances, about our own financial responsibility. But that's just what the elders heard when we went out and we did the drill down after the survey, when we went out and interviewed small groups and individuals, we had people tell us, we want to know what Scripture says about our own responsibility when it comes to finances. And that's just another reason we're offering the financial seminar this next weekend. The truth is, in most churches, people don't want to hear about giving because they don't want to have a guilt trip laid on them. But there's the rub. We are not to be giving to the Lord's work out of guilt. No, there's a greater motivation to give, and we're going to talk about that this morning. God opened my eyes to what I call grace giving a very long time ago, and it made a great difference in my life. No longer under the law as manifested by the tithe, grace giving is freeing, it is joyous. It allows us to really be gracious and generous. And I know this view may be new to, to a number of you, but hear me out. Don't call me a heretic until you've heard everything I have to share from God's Word. Now, while 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 addresses giving to relieve the needs of the Jerusalem church, it is also the most extensive treatment of giving in the New Testament. It is not being ripped from its context this morning, but provides us with the guidance we need from God when it comes to giving to the Lord's work. Before we dive in there, we need to lay a little foundational background. We often hear the word stewardship used in church. Stewardship is not talking about giving or tithing. The word stewardship conveys the idea that we are responsible for the proper use and management of those things that God has entrusted to us. Time, talent, treasure. After all, it all belongs to him. Everything belongs to him. None of it, no matter how much we try to convince ourselves of it, belongs to us. 
Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and those who dwell therein. That's you and me. Paul echoed the same sentiment in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So what we have belongs to God. Who we are belongs to God. He lets us use these things, time, talent, and treasure. And we have the responsibility to manage those resources, to manage our very lives for his glory. Despite the fact that so many people tie their identity to what material possessions they have, our money is not ours, and our money is not us. It doesn't define us. In reality, we do not have anything. God owns it all, like I said, and it all belongs to him. If you and I have anything, it's because God's grace, by God's grace that he has entrusted it to us. We are not the owners. We are the managers. Our relationship with him is what is important. Our relationship with him through Jesus Christ. Not only that, but our money is not us. If our identity is tied up in what we own, then we're on this constant treadmill of trying to gain more and gain more and gain more so we can feel better about ourselves and so other people will think better of us. That's crazy. It's just feeding our egos. Instead, our identity is in Jesus Christ. Who we are has everything to do with Jesus and what he has done on our behalf. And nothing to do with what we have or what we do. That means if we lose all our earthly possessions, not something we want to see happen, but if we were to lose all of our earthly possessions, it would not change the fact that you and I are the adopted sons and daughters of the living God by the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that's what matters. In discussing this subject matter, we need to remember that it is God who will cause a change of heart in us. He will reorder our thinking and our priorities. Paul told us, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Get that. We do not affect the change in our lives. It is God who is at work in us. It is God who works out his will in us. I can tell you I'm not going to exhaust all of what Scripture says this week or next week when it comes to the, the, the idea of giving. And nor will I fully expound on what I present this morning. There just wouldn't be time. It would take six weeks, six Sundays, to, to fully flesh out what the Scripture says about giving. But we're going to look at enough of the Word that hopefully you're going to go back and go home and dig, dig into the Word talk to the Lord about your management of his resources and as a result have a deeper understanding of what his word says and remember when you do dig further scripture will not it cannot and it does not contradict itself so as we read notice that the first five verses Paul is talking to the Corinthian church about the churches in Macedonia to the north you see Corinth right there in the middle and the churches of Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea were the churches that made up the Macedonian churches that Paul's making reference to here. He says in verse 1, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty 
have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us, earnest, begging us earnestly for the favor in taking part of the, for the relief of the saints, and this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God they gave themselves to us. So then, verse 6 and following, he's talking specifically to the Corinthian church about their situation. He says, accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command. That's important. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also the desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your, re so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do, do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance in the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Instead of preaching the gospel, too many preachers are preaching behavior modification. I've shared with you before about my attempts at behavior modification. I want to be a better daddy. I want to be a better husband. You know, I want to be a better whatever. And so I read books, many of which my wife put in front of me. But I read them. And I would take the information from those things, and I'd go along for three, four, five days, and phew, I'm doing pretty good. And then all of a sudden, boom, I fall flat on my face. Why? Because I'm trying to affect the change in my life. Behavior modification doesn't work apart from the work of God in our hearts. Our performance doesn't mean anything when it comes to earning or maintaining favor with God. Obedience is important, but our performance, things we do to earn or maintain favor with God is adding to the gospel of grace. Too many people are preaching law instead of the gospel, burdening the people with rules and regulations for the good Christian. In Luke 11, Jesus takes on the Jewish lawyers, saying that they load people with burdens hard to bear. Those same people are in the church today. They want to load people down with cumbersome burdens, rules and regulations to be kept legalistically. Not only that, but today we face false gospels and false teachers that are not necessarily as intrusive or as offensive as, as the Judaizers who required the Gentile believers to be circumcised and become Jews in order to truly be saved. 
What we do hear, though, on the TV, on the radio, on the internet, we hear these false teachers propagating their false gospel, their false brand of giving. Think about the underlying motivation of the things that false people, false teachers tell people, such as, quote, God spoke to us to give this offering, and we are going to pray over it. I just want you to know that God is going to bless us in return. What's the motivation? To get more. Another one. God wants to bless you and prosper you in your finances and in all areas of your life. But you must first give to him. Sow seeds. Again, money. These false teachers talk about sowing seeds. Give us your money. Do something in order to receive God's blessings. Pay your tithes and trust God's word. He will open up the windows of heaven and pour out blessings. You won't have room enough to receive all he will give you. Again, it's all tied to doing. And the motivation is to get more. Not to glorify God. Not to show love for him and for his church. And then there's other such such nonsense as you can have your best life now. I mean, as if our best life could ever be in this life instead of in glory. All of those things go completely against what the Apostle Paul wrote. Not only to the Ephesians in chapter 1 where he talked about the blessings that are ours in Christ. And if you need to be reminded of that, go back and read that. It's incredible. The blessings that we have already received. We've received God's grace. We have heard His gospel. We have experienced His salvation. Those are the things that matter. When Dan preached through Galatians, we saw over and over again that nothing we do can either earn or maintain God's favor. Salvation and sanctification are all of grace. So let's talk about the tithe as a guideline for giving. The tithe as it is understood today, giving 10% of one's income income to God. And I say as it is understood today because in the Old Testament it was like 23.5% if I'm right. I can't remember if I'm exactly right, but it was something like that. If you were going to tithe, you gave 23.5% of your, your income to the priests. But today it's understood as giving 10% of one's income to God, and it's an Old Testament requirement. It's law. Of course, the law is important. It reveals our sin to us. It shows us that we are train wrecks. It shines a light on our behavior. It is God's expectation of perfection to which none of us can attain. But Jesus did. He kept the law perfectly, and His righteousness has been imputed to us. Paul said the law was our guardian, our guide, until Jesus came. Why? In order that we might be justified by faith. Not by anything else that we do. That's adding to the gospel. In order that we might be justified by faith. In Romans 6, Paul argues that believers are not under the law, but under grace. In 1 Corinthians 9, he says, Paul says that he himself is not under the Old Testament law, but under the law of Christ. In Galatians 3, he declares, those who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, 
and that before faith came, we were held captive under the law. We were imprisoned. Recall what Paul wrote in in Galatians chapter 5, for freedom Christ has set you free. To be clear, Paul was not arguing in favor of the live-as-you-want-to-do-as-you-want lawless mindset that theologians call antinomianism, and neither am I. A fellow named G.K. Beale, in his book, A New Testament Biblical Theology, points out that the Westminster Confession contends, quote, only the purely moral part of the law, represented by the Ten Commandments, carries over to the church, because the ceremonial laws, the Mosaic Law, tithing were typologically fulfilled in Christ and Israel's civil laws ceased when the commonwealth of Israel ceased in AD 70. So that so an absence in the New Testament of a revocation of the Mosaic command to tithe is not definitive. What we do see though is that nowhere in the New Testament do Jesus or any of the New Testament writers command or even encourage the tithe when talking about giving. Nowhere in the New Testament is the tithe identified as the guideline or the standard for giving for New Testament believers. Assuming the tithe to be the standard in New Testament churches today is a tradition carried over from being under the law. And we're not under the law. The word tithe does show up in four places in the New Testament. In Matthew 23 and Luke 11, both writers are describing the same same event. Jesus was chewing on the Pharisees for the way they meticulously tithed their dill, mint, and cumin. Picture it. Go out to the herb garden and you pick a little of this and a little of this and a little of this. And then you go and you weigh 10% of it to give to the priests. Really? That's what they did. That's what they did. But And Jesus was chewing on them because they paid very strict attention to doing that and they ignored the weightier matters of the law. They were under the law. People have argued that Jesus was affirming the tithe here for the New Testament church, but that does not make sense given the context. He was chastising the Pharisees for neglecting the more important matters of the law. He was addressing people still living under the law. We are not living under the law, but under grace. Jesus nowhere instructs his disciples that the tithe is to be the practice of the church. Third place the word tithe shows up is in Luke 18, where the self-righteous man, bragging about his, his spirituality, his religiosity, who was also living under the law, talks about paying tithes of all I get. And finally, the fourth place is in Hebrews 7, where the writer's not talking about giving, but he's addressing the superiority of Christ. In warning against pride when it comes to our giving, D.A. Carson wrote, to suppose that God demands 10% and nothing more can itself foster a remarkably independent and idolatrous attitude. This bit for God, and the rest is mine by right. He went on, likewise, if you choose to give more than 10%, you may become inebriated from the contemplation of your own generosity. Pretty descriptive. For some time now, 
We here at Parkway have been focusing on the gospel of grace, preaching through the, the, the book of Galatians, discussions in our life groups and so on. Why in the world would we detour from that focus when it comes to our finances and giving? Through the Apostle Paul, Paul, God provided practical guidelines for Christian giving. Here in 2 Corinthians 8, next week we're going to also see where he talks about it in 2 Corinthians 9. These guidelines can be helpful to believers, but just how helpful is, is dependent upon how tied a church is to the traditional tide and how tied the people who make up the church are to the traditional tithe. Giving is an act of grace. Giving is a function of God's grace in our lives. Paul draws the attention of his Corinthian readers to the churches in Macedonia to the north. He's quick to point out that the generous giving of these churches was an act of divine grace. Talking about their giving, he said, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. <clears throat> it's only as God first blesses that we are even able to give. It's only as God enables us by his grace to give that we can even give. As a result of the fall, we are not generous by nature. We're selfish. We're egocentric. Generosity only exhibits itself in our lives as a result of God's grace in our lives. So our giving is to be grace-giving. What do I mean by that? Our giving is a result of our being blessed, not the other way around. We are not to give in order to be blessed. As believers, we have already been blessed by God, by His grace, through His salvation, and His gospel. Our giving is the fruit of those blessings. I was talking with a pastor friend of mine in this county, and he told me that a man in his church came to him and said, I really want to be blessed more. And you know what my friend said? Give more. And I looked at him, I said, did you just hear yourself? Really? We have been blessed as believers. God saved us through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Not by anything we've done. Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us. It's specifically because of what Jesus has done for us that we are able to give. What did he do? Like I said a second ago, he took our sin upon himself. He paid the price that God required for our disobedience. He suffered the full wrath of God. He suffered and experienced complete abandonment by his Father. For you and me. As we come to grips with that truth, we can't help but give to the Lord's work. Just as we can't help but serve inside or outside the church, evangelize, minister to other people. We come to grips with that truth. You can't hold a person back. Remember, just as we do not memorize Scripture, have a quiet time, or study the Word in order to earn or maintain favor with God, we do not give in order to earn or maintain favor with God. Our identity as believers is not tied up in any of those things, including our giving. 
So how do we give? What's our motivation? Paul focuses our attention on just what the people in the Macedonian churches were experiencing when and how they gave. They experienced a severe test of affliction. They experienced, as a result, extreme poverty. The people Paul's talking about were undergoing a significant time of persecution. The result of this persecution was that they were not rich by any means, but they still gave joyfully. The Macedonians were not unlike the widow. Jesus pointed out to the disciples who went up and put in her two small copper coins. Jesus telling his disciples, check that out. All those other guys, given the little bit that they did, they gave out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Same kind of idea as what Paul's talking about here. Poverty. Giving out of one's poverty. That extreme poverty that the Macedonians were experiencing resulted in joyful giving. Poverty did not diminish their ability to be generous. Poverty welled up in rich generosity. Their giving was generous, simple, and sincere. This generosity Paul refers to <clears throat> with having, has to do with re, um, having an attitude, an unreserved attitude toward one's possessions, that they are not ours, but that they belong to God. If that's our attitude, it's easy to give away someone else's money, right? It's God's, not ours. How did they give? We see the answer in verses 3 through 5. They gave according to their means and beyond their means. According to their ability and beyond their ability. They figured out what they could give comfortably, and then they gave beyond that. Intentionally. Understand, it's not the dollar amount or percentage that matters. It is the willingness to give and following through on that willingness that matters. It's taking the desire of the heart and living it out. Later in the passage here, Paul wrote in verse 11... So now finish doing it well so that your readiness in desiring it, that is the desire of your heart, may be matched by your completing it out of what you have, living out that desire. Because of God's grace and their joyful attitude, they also gave of their own accord. That is, not because they had to, but voluntarily, because they got to. I'll frequently talk with, with, with people and, and someone will say, well, yeah, I have to go to church on Sunday. Are you kidding me? We get to go to church. We get to gather with fellow believers and lift up the name of Jesus. We get to. We get to give. It's not a command, and we'll talk about that in a second. No kind of pressure. What they did was thought out by their own free choice. I'm sure we all have our own experiences that we could share about pressure we have heard from the pulpit with respect to giving. I mean, giving, you know, people go, oh, giving, really? Really? They don't want to hear about it. Because it's all about pressure. It's all about you've got to do this and you've got to do that. And you've got to measure up. 
I experienced a situation 13 or 14 years ago where the people of the church that we were a part of during a capital campaign were told to march up to the front of the church and drop their pledge card on a table to the strains of I surrender all. <laughs> and that was done in front of everyone in each service. Really? Yeah, really. It was expected. Talk about pressure. You will never hear any pressure to give from this pulpit because the Bible teaches that giving is to be voluntary. Get that. Giving is to be voluntary. To do otherwise would be to engage in legalism. To tell people just how much they are to give would be to engage in legalism, which Paul explicitly condemned in his letter to the churches in Galatia. The elders of this church are in agreement. It's all about grace giving. It's all about grace giving. These folks in Macedonia appealed to Paul to participate in the gift of grace. The word begging in verse 4 tells us they really, 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 really wanted to do it. They literally chased after Paul to beg him to allow them to give. So does that characterize our attitude when it comes to giving to the Lord's work? I don't say that in a moralistic sense. Don't, Don't hear me wrong. I'm just asking that I, just to, to cause us to stop and think about and talk to the Lord about our management of his money. Again, it is God at work in you and in me. Not me or any other preacher. It's God who will form or reform your motivation in this regard. Now these folks were in extreme poverty and still they gave liberally. Why were they able to do that? Why were they able to beg Paul to participate? The answer is in verse 5. They gave themselves first to the Lord. The Lord, the owner, the master, the ruler. They offered themselves. The word gave tells us they offered themselves to the Lord. They entrusted themselves to the Lord. They yielded themselves to the Lord. They recognized, again, the fact that the Lord owned it all. These folks wanted to serve Jesus. These folks wanted to demonstrate their love for Jesus and for his church. So that's our motivation for giving, folks. Love. Not you have to. Not I have to. Nobody's going to look down on anybody. It's not about any of that stuff. All of that detracts from the gospel. All of that detracts from God's grace in our lives. They gave themselves first to the Lord. They entrusted themselves, offered themselves, and yielded themselves. And then by the will of God, Paul says, they entrusted, yielded, and offered themselves to us. They were so committed to serving the Lord, they refused to allow their economic situation to keep them from participating in the Lord's work. Involvement in this way was the, in the Lord's work was a service, just as giving is a service today. Understand, Their view was not that this was a financial obligation. No. They saw it as a ministry opportunity. People today, I hear, talking about paying their tithe as if it was just another bill to pay. I would challenge those who think that way to consider seeing the act of giving as an act of worship. Not just an obligation. I mean, we give to the Lord's work during our corporate worship together. Just as singing and prayer and the Lord's table and exposition of the word is all part of worship, 
so too is giving. In verse, in verse 7, Paul encourages the Corinthians to excel in this act of grace. But at the same time, in verse 8, he makes it clear that what he is encouraging the Corinthians to do is not a command. It is instead a demonstration of love. What he does in verse 9 is he points to Jesus, who is the ultimate example of generosity. How so? Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Think Philippians 2. <clears throat> Paul's talking about Jesus when he wrote, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? Why would he do that? Love. Love. That was his motivation. When he gave himself for you and me. That's our motivation when it comes to giving to the Lord's work. His existence in heaven versus his existence in, on earth. By comparison, he completely emptied himself. He made himself nothing. Why? So that you by his poverty might become rich. The riches Paul, re Paul refers to has to be the salvation that God offers. That is Paul's hope for the Corinthians and for you and me, that we too might empty ourselves for others. Again, demonstrating our love for one another. The aim of these giving guidelines in this particular case is not an exchange of financial burdens. Paul said, for I do not... Paul says, for I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened. The word for burdened is, is, is the same word for being hard-pressed or being under pressure of one kind or another. And the word for eased is the same word for relieved. It denotes a relief or relaxation of that pressure. Paul does seek the Judeans' relief from the pressure of being in dire economic straits. But not to the extent that someone else is financially strapped in the process. God does not want our giving to cause us to be financially strapped without enough to care for our own family. The objective, rather, Paul says, is that there may be fairness in verse 13. But what does he mean by fairness? Is Paul putting forward a kind of biblical socialism, a redistribution of the wealth, a leveling of the rich and the poor? Some people have erroneously understood him to be saying that, just that. Yet what Paul suggests here is, as appropriate, is equity of basic needs being met. Not equity of supply. The word fairness is found only here and in Colossians chapter 4 in the New Testament and denotes what is equitable and fair. So it's equity, not equality, that is at issue here. It's important to recognize 
and this is just a good example of that, equity versus equality, it's important to recognize and consider that 10% of an annual income of $35,000 has a different impact on that giver than 10% of an income of $150,000 has on that giver. And Paul is not saying that possession of a surplus of material goods is wrong for a Christian. Commenting on this, John Piper wrote, Thou shalt not steal actually endorses private property ownership. But all human ownership begins with God's long-term loan of the earth. So what is the guideline? The guideline Paul offers could actually be more than what would be required by the traditional tithe. Let's be honest. Hanging on to the, the concept of the traditional tithe with a death grip keeps us safe. We don't have to give any more. Right? Talked with a brother after the first service. And he said, dude, shatter the idea of a percentage. Shatter the idea of a percentage. Don't think in terms of percentages. We may even participate in grace giving. Giving as the Lord has laid it on our hearts. But, because <laughs> we're sinners, what do we do? We take what we give to the Lord's work in the church, and this missionary, and this ministry, and this, this, this mission out, uh, organization right here, and we add it all up to see what the percentage is. That's silly. But we do it. The freedom to give more than a tithe has always been there. But it's the tradition of the tithe that has just kept pouring itself into the New Testament church. If we can get past that tradition, if we can get past that duty to give 10%, and see giving as an act of grace that God affects in our lives, who knows what he might have us do? Look at the other side of the coin. This is not guilt tripping. Hear me well. I read about a study recently that said only 9% of born-again believers regularly give on a Sunday morning to the Lord's work. I personally, personally believe that that can, in part, be attrib attributed to the tradition of the tithe. I know this because over the course of the last several decades, I've had people come and talk to me about this and ask questions about this. They believe that the tradition of the tithe is sacrosanct, it's sacred, holy, and untouchable. In other words, they think they must give 10%. At the same time, they think they can't afford to give 10%, so they don't give anything at all. Right? What if these folks adopted grace giving instead? It wouldn't be about 10%. They could start out at a specific dollar amount. They would see, in fact, that they did have enough to get through the week until the next paycheck. How do we know that? We sang about it this morning. God is faithful. God is faithful. He's always faithful. He's never unfaithful. He tells us in 2 Corinthians 9, God is able... That word able means powerful. God is powerful to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency, that is the state of contentment, 
in all things at all times you may abound in every good work. And in Philippians chapter 4, Paul said, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. So that all sufficiency that Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians 9 has to do with the state of contentment and being content has to do with how we live out that contentment. If people adopted grace giving as their guideline, they would see God's grace at work in their lives. Just like Paul described how God's grace was at work in the lives of the people that made up the churches in Macedonia. They would then be more inclined to consider giving not only according to their ability, but be also beyond their ability, according to their means and beyond their means. What exactly is Paul talking about when he says that? Giving according to one's means has to do with giving out of that which one has. We are not called to give what we do not have. Giving is to be in proportion to what we earn. Verse 12, for if the readiness is there, it is acceptable. The readiness is the desire to give, right? If the readiness is there, it is acceptable. The gift is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. It's not about a percentage, but a relative proportion that is important. Finally, I want to point out one more thing. Looking at our giving as grace giving is not an escape hatch. It's not an escape hatch. Oh, you mean I don't have to give 10%? Cool. I'll give five. No. No. We must not use it as a way to justify giving less, saying just that. Grace giving, like I said earlier, is something that God works in our hearts. We will know if we're bugging out. The Spirit will tell us. Adopting grace giving as our guide could very well result in our giving beyond our ability in the furtherance of the kingdom. So what do we see this morning from this passage of Scripture? And like I said, I didn't cover everything. There's no way to. We give according to our means, according to our ability, and beyond our means. Of our own accord, it's voluntary. Our motivation is love. Love for God and love for His church. Giving is a matter of equity, not equality. And the guideline for giving is out of what we have, not out of what we do not have. And Father, we are so grateful that we are under grace. We are so grateful that our giving is voluntary. Your word tells us that. We're grateful, Lord, that there's no pressure unless we self-inflict it. God, make us generous people. But, Lord, we know we can't be generous people unless we really have a grip on the gospel of grace, unless we really understand that Jesus truly paid it all. That Jesus kept the law perfectly. And because of that, His righteousness has been imputed to us. We are free because of Jesus.
Your grace is amazing, Lord, and we thank you. Amen.